welcome everybody to this special uh, presentation for St. Bridget's Day. And uh, St. Bridget, as we know, um, is kind of an avatar of women who has emerged in, in the last few years, uh, almost as a counterweight to uh, St. Patrick. And it's, it's very kind of patriarchal um, themes and so on. And St. Bridget reaches very far back into our, our pagan past. Um, and then as she is converted to a Christian saint, but throughout has been a very powerful figure, um, a, a goddess of fire, of manufacturing, of creativity. And in her new incarnation, I think she's a she's an inspiration for women who take leadership positions, who are involved in business, um, and uh, a very inspirational figure. And it's great to see the development of St. Bridget's Day as a focal point for discussions around the empowerment of women. And today we're going to focus on women, peace and security. And I'm joined by an absolutely tremendous panel. So they put me in a position of chair, but I will rapidly retreat to the back of the chariot, I have to say, in the face of uh, the talent, power and leadership here today. Uh, I'll do a brief introduction. We're joined by uh, Neve Kelly, a uh, first secretary from our uh, perm rep in New York at the United Nations. And she's had, I'd say, a very busy two years uh, because we've been on the Security Council. And we'll get some insights from, from her on that. We're also joined by uh, Commander Roberta O'Brien, uh, who's had a storied career in our defense forces, um, uh, was one of the first women to join, I think the first woman to join uh, the Navy with a friend of hers uh, back in 1995. <coughs> Rapidly rose through the ranks to take command, the first woman to command one of our ships, the, uh, the Ashling in 2008, and is currently uh, involved in defense capacity uh, building with, uh, with NATO under Ireland's Partnership uh, for Peace. We're also joined by Eleanor O'Gorman. Delighted to have her uh, with us because myself and Eleanor worked together in building the Conflict Resolution Unit in the Department of Foreign Affairs many, many years ago. And it was, uh, Eleanor came in and uh, after a couple of days in, in, in working with us in, in foreign affairs, she turned to me and said, is this it? Is this all there is? And she says, because you guys have a great reputation. So she suddenly realized Foreign Affairs is a Wizard of Oz operation. Uh, we punch above our weight. But Eleanor has uh, been involved in um, uh, the study of women in conflict uh, and, and the ways that we can empower them. And it was thanks to her um, that we adopted UN Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace and Security. Um, and I th and we've, we've had a number of national action plans since then. So she's currently based in Cambridge uh, and works as a consultant as well after many, many years of experience with, with the NGOs. Um, and we're also, I'm delighted to, uh, to see Sally Armstrong again. Um, she was a keynote speaker at a gala event I, I was hosting um, and uh, gave a tremendous speech. Um, but Sally is a renowned uh, and I could say decorated journalist, uh, a writer, human rights activist, um, but she's been uh, reporting from war zones uh, around the world, uh, the Middle East, particularly Afghanistan, but also in Africa. And she's had a keen eye and a mighty pen when it comes to the issues of women, and particularly women caught in conflict, young women, older women, women in societies in which uh, they are almost deliberately disempowered. Um, and so we're really delighted to have her with us. So I'll hand over to Sally, who will uh, make some uh, opening comments, and then we will uh, open the floor to discussions uh, with a focus on 1325 
conflict and the empowerment of women on this St. Bridget's Day. Over to you, Sally. Thank you, Ambassador. Well, happy St. Bridget's Day, everybody. <clears throat> Excuse me, and I must say I'm just delighted to have been invited to join this panel. But before we begin, I have to make a confession. In fact, two confessions. Now, the ambassador has preempted me on that. I wanted to say to you, they already met your very charming ambassador when he was the MC and I was the guest speaker at a UN event. I have to say he was probably the best part of the evening. My second comment is that in June, I went hiking on the Wild Atlantic Way in Ireland. And between those two, I have to say, I am totally smitten by Ireland, by Irish people, by all things Irish. So having said that, I had to find out about St. Bridget. I'd never heard of her. And I researched her. What a dame. You know, she reminded me of Marie, the prioress who became abbess in uh, Matrix, that best-selling book by Lauren Grove. So I want to say to you that about a week before St. Bridget's Day, the New York Times had a story uh, about whether or not the male of the species was doing as well as he had been doing in the past. They said that in South Korea, the girls were outperforming the boys at school. They said in Sweden, uh, the boys were suffering uh, a crisis of confidence. They said that in U.S. colleges, women were students were starting to outnumber male students by two to one. Uh, the question they asked was this. Is the second sex becoming the better half? Well, what a lovely suggestion. Although I'm not in favor of any sex being any better than any other sex, and I really don't understand why we can't all do best together. But it's interesting, isn't it? Every time women and girls take a step forward, there are headlines about men and boys. And here we go again. But before they go celebrating, the advancement of women, and indeed, there have been enormous advances in the last, uh, well, the last hundred years, but several, uh, the last several decades, to be precise. I think they need to look at the topic that you have taken on today. Women with resistance and resilience are the very ones we celebrate because they're the very ones who have brought us to where we are in this journey. In, in fact, the, the New York Times journalist only has something to write about because of these women. I'm a journalist. I work in zones of conflict. And my beat is to find out what happens to women and girls in places like Afghanistan, um, Bosnia back in the day, uh, Iraq, Iran, places where everyone's in trouble, but women are particularly targeted. I can tell you, now is the hour for resistance and resilience both there and right here. And thankfully, we're not alone. You know, the other night I went to see a movie and, and now I've discovered it's been nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. It's called Women Talking. I urge you to see that film. Um, you know, the women in the film, what they do painstakingly is, is what we all need to do. They ask the impolite questions. Uh, they, they give voice to truth and, and they use resistance and resilience to deal with life altering issues. So on St. Bridget's Day, let us do the same. 
let us ask about violence against women. Let us ask why, despite the actions women have taken, this continues to be a scourge in our society, an incredibly expensive scourge. Let us ask how the world can let the Taliban deny women and girls the rights granted to them by the UN Charter and Declarations that Afghanistan signed. Let us ask uh, how on earth the Ayatollahs in Iran deny women human rights when they also signed the Declaration of Human Rights. Let us ask how we can immediately stop violence against women everywhere. Consider what women have done about violence, particularly intimate partner violence. We changed the law in Canada. We even put it into the constitution. Uh, we pumped up awareness. Uh, we built shelters all over the place so that our sisters could find safety. But what happened? Almost nothing. The statistics have barely budged. While the rest of the issues around women have been changing fairly rapidly, these statistics did not. You know, it's known as a women's problem. It's not a women's problem. It's a men's problem. Uh, and, and it's high time the men took on this $1.3 trillion problem that's affecting half of the world's population. Like the film Women Talking, it's time men did the talking. I have no doubt that most men are, are abhorred by, by violence against women. But why don't they stand up in public and say so? Where are the sports heroes' voices? Where, where are the pop stars' voices? Why doesn't the CEO of a bank tell his 400,000 employees, if you are harming your partner, I will fire you because that is criminal behavior. If you need help with your temper or the violence you're experiencing, we'll get help for you. But if you, if you don't get help, you cannot work at this bank. Have you ever heard a CEO of a bank say that? I never have. In fact, if you look at the corporate world, you have to ask yourself here in 2023 on St. Bridget's Day, how is it possible women still don't have equal pay? How is it possible that sexual harassment and, and sexual assault still make headlines in the police force and the military? How is it possible that a female journalist or a female Repeat, this is not a women's problem. This is a men's problem. In the film, Women Talking, and I, I keep talking about it because I'm so stunned. I only just saw it and I just had to tell you about it. But what they do is they tell the awful truth. They get mad at each other for talking too much, for not saying enough. They fight back and forth. They accuse each other and then they hug each other. And then together they make a decision. It is a master class in resistance and resilience. You know, today we are witnessing the courage and tenacity of women who are trying to cut the ties that bind them to brutality and injustice. Remember Rehaf Mohammed? She was the girl at the age of 18 who ran away from Saudi Arabia because her father was going to kill her. And, and she made it as far as Bangkok before they caught up with her. And then she barricaded herself in a hotel room and she went on Twitter to save her own life. And she tweeted her story out to the world and the world tweeted back to her. I became her ghostwriter. The book is called Rebel and it is all about resilience and resistance.
Last week, I was on assignment for the Globe and Mail to do a story out of Iran about what the women are up to. You know, those awful Ayatollahs, they thought this protest would be a three-day event. It's now in its fifth month, and young women are cutting their hair, burning their hijabs, going to the street and shouting, life, women, freedom. You know, it's social media that gave this protest its wings. It's all over the country on Instagram and TikTok. And that unity all over the country is what might be the ticket that makes them succeed. This protest began because of the killing of a 22-year-old girl, Gina Massa Amini. She, they killed her. The Revolutionary Guards killed her for wearing her hijab incorrectly. Can you just imagine that? And these courageous women, they just might be the ones to overthrow the Ayatollahs. And as my research said, that will change the entire region for the better. But it's costing. It always costs women when they're trying to make change. Human Rights Watch reported in November that there's been 341 protesters and 52 of them children who've been killed by the guards during this protest. More than 15,000 arrests have been made for charges such as enmity against God and corruption on earth. They both carry the death penalty, by the way. And then there's Afghanistan. I've been covering Afghanistan since 1996. I'm still covering Afghanistan. And people are very quick to say, well, that 20-year period when the international community arrived was a failure. Let me tell you this. During that 20-year period, the life expectancy of an Afghan went from 47 years to 63 years. That's not a failure. That's a miracle. But look at it now. How come our hands are tied? Is it not time to sit down together and make some new demands? If you refuse education to your girls and work to your women, we will stop you. If you treat your women and girls as property, we will not trade with you. If you hurt your partner and refuse help, we will fire you. I hope that today, the work we're doing together can allow us to come up with some solutions to change the course so that women by resisting and, and by being resilient can create a life that is safer and more just and much better for their daughters. I have to say in closing, it's times like this, I cannot fail but think of Maya Angelou and her incredible poem, And Still We Stand. Remember, she wrote, you may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness, but still like air, I'll rise. Over to you, Ambassador. Thank you so much, Sally. Um, uh, you covered an awful lot there, and, and the, the, certainly the impression I have is that if we were to do and renew an agenda for women, it would include such things as don't murder me, don't torture me, don't lock me away, don't, don't refuse me education and freedom. Um, and that's a sobering thought. And you know, I have two daughters myself, and, and uh, I was hiking with Courtney one day in the, just in the Wicklow Mountains, and she said, you know, I would never do this on my own because I, I, I'd be nervous as a young woman on my own in the foothills of Dublin. And so, uh, and I just make that point because it's everywhere. It's not just in, in, in Afghanistan, with the awful Taliban and so on. It's, it's in our streets. And as you say, there's a responsibility there uh, on us as men to begin to become advocates that, that the problem was created by us. 
we'll no doubt return to many of the rich uh, topics you've touched on there. Just because uh, you mentioned it at the beginning about the responsibility of men, I might turn to Commander O'Brien, Roberta. Um, I, I was quite struck by the fact that in Aherlow, you joined the, the hurling team with the boys um, and uh, you then joined uh, a notoriously male uh, uh, environment, the military, um, back in 1995, which, God, think about it, it's almost 30 years ago. Um, just to pick up on that topic of men's responsibility in your experiences of dealing with what you know the kind of the the sporting but also the military realm uh, realm and 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 how that ha how you've responded to that and what do you make of sally's kind of call for men to take more responsibility well um to start from the the start with my story and why i joined uh the the all boys hurling team uh, it very much came from uh, coming from a very much feminist background of uh, mother and father, but uh, for sure my mother, who was a very strong advocate that there shouldn't be any opportunities restricted to me where, uh, just because I was a woman. And uh, I was big into sports, and you're on about advocates. I came from a big family, three brothers and three sisters. Not a lot to do out in the countryside. So we played um, hurling and out the front. And it was my older brother who said, look, if you want to go playing, just go up and start playing uh, at lunchtime. And uh, that's what I did um, in national school. I went up and the headmaster, he was a very uh, tall, strong, loud uh, person from Cork who, uh, you know, um, pulled no punches. Like, you know, he, he said what he wanted to say. And initially when he saw me, he says, what was I doing up here? But I actually just blocked that out because I had a friend who actually said it to me recently. She said, Roberta, I couldn't believe that you kept playing. And I said, well, I was up there to play hurling. I didn't care whether he thought I could. And after a few minutes, the rest of the team, the fellas that were there, because it was all the boys, because I went to a mixed primary school, um, they just treated me like a, another person who wanted to play hurling and didn't distinguish. So that's where I think what Sally was saying about uh, male advocates and people, you know, if they see that you're there wanting to take part in the, the job or the sport that you want to do and you're mean business uh, in general, most uh, men will uh, advocate and support you in that endeavor. I fast forward then to when I was trying to decide what I wanted to do when I left school, looked at the naval service. And uh, sadly, we'll be on about resistance and change and how things, it was 1995. That's hard to believe that uh, it took that long for them to allow women to even mm. join, which is crazy. But again, um, I was very fortunate. About 90% of the, the, the fellows that I came across in the Naval Service were strong advocates who encouraged uh, me throughout my trainer uh, training uh, to become um, an officer and ultimately take command um, of my own ship in 2008. But it definitely didn't come all rosy in the garden. There was those negative comments from some um, men. And I remember my first patrol in particular, sitting down um, at having my lunch break during the watch, you'd go back up um, onto the bridge. And one particular individual was being quite nasty to me. And in fairness, uh, the all my male colleagues within the, the Naval Service pulled that fella aside and had words with him. So this where it comes to male advocates having the moral courage and calling people out on their, their bad behaviours. Because, look, I'm not going to be naive and say that it was all plain sailing, pardon the pun, but the majority of, of people have uh, sisters, have mothers, grannies, you know what I mean? And they realise if somebody wants to do the job, that they're there to support them. 
So, yeah. Right. And over those years, do you think it has improved? I think it has um, uh, improved, but we still have a long way to go. And sadly, with our most recent uh, documentary that was uh, released in Women of Honour, and you'd be on about uh, people with great moral courage um, and uh, resilience to, to speak out. Um, and uh, as a result of that, I think our chief of staff handled the, this, is handling the situation very well. He's Again, uh, we're having conversations at the senior uh, the highest levels. And it's interesting to hear Sally mentioning it, uh, that it's not just a women's issue. He brought a number of us uh, currently serving senior females, both non-commissioned officers and officers within the Defence Forces. And he, we had um, an online hybrid meeting and he wanted to hear open and honestly our opinion. And uh, I remember saying to him that day, um, I said, sir, I said, this is not a women's issue to solve. It's not up to us to solve it. I said, this is a leadership. This is an organizational challenge. And in fairness, I believe the chief of staff has rightly spoken out against that and is promoting to try and change the cultural change because it's not everybody within the organization. There's a small percentage that have been allowed to have that voice and put people through those terrible scenarios and situations that those women of honor with great moral courage spoke out about. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a very important point as well that um, we in Ireland have come from decades of a very repressive Catholic church in which women's position was highly constrained, um, but that those who broke through that were heroic women like Mary Robinson, Nell McCafferty, mm -hmm. Mary McAleese, and, and real champions, but it was the women that took up those those challenges, you know. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to that, no doubt. Eleanor, I mean, you've been in, in, in different milieus, uh, both government as well as NGO, um, and you've combined um, a kind of rigorous academic approach with an understanding of how power works. Um, can you just give us some insights about how what what are the most propitious circumstances for the adva advancement of women, and what are the kind of institutional blockages you've come across? I mean, are they kind of deeply atavistic, or are there are there more structural reasons why? Uh, the the evolution of women to to a proper status in society and in life and in power has been so frustrated. Uh, thanks, Eamon. No, I mean I think uh, Roberta hit the nail on the head with talking about organisational cultures. A lot of the changes, I would say, in the first wave, even if we look at like thirteen twenty five and women, peace and security, a lot of it was about changing the legal framework, setting quotas, let's try and appoint more women as special representatives at the UN, for example. Let's try and include more women into uh, diplomatic negotiations, peace talks. Uh, you're very aware of that, Eamon. But I do think that um, I speak quite frankly, as some, I worked in the UN, I've worked with NGOs, I've worked as an academic. I have found institutional resistance to gender in the most shocking places. And I have found humanitarian aid workers and peace builders to be just as likely as the military um, to house that resistance. And um, I would imagine the media as well, Sally. Um, it's not easy being on the front line reporting stuff. Um, so, but we've also come a ways and I, I think it is about leadership and it is about modeling that and it's about accountability. I think it's following through. And if we look at um, the 
UN, for example, I mean, there's been long running talk about sexual harassment uh, within the organization, but also sexual exploitation and abuse with regard to aid recipients. It has rumbled on and rumbled on and there have been ethics offices and investigations, etc. but no real accountability. And there was a documentary last year. I couldn't even bring myself to watch it, actually, because I've heard so much over the years interviewing a number of women who um, had had recent cases and, and had left. So I think it's a human issue. It's a society issue. So it's no surprise it shows up um, everywhere. But I think some of the signals to me are about power and empowerment. So I would say um, that it also depends where, where the women are placed and the backing they have. Um, there's been a lot of emphasis, for example, in the peace building field around mediator networks and diplomatic postings and positions. And that's important as far as it goes. But in fact, it doesn't change the dynamics of how the table is built, who's at the table, um, etc. And I think one of the exciting developments for me in a younger generation is the spontaneous rise of local women's movements, youth movements, not just women, women and men. Um, Sally talked about Iran. I was in Lebanon in late 2021 and was super impressed by a dynamic, young, organic kind of movement of women and LGBTQ. And they were driving change in a way that even the classic NGOs and aid system couldn't really deal with. Um, and also they're coming from inside their own countries. They're not waiting for someone to come and sort it out for them. They're, you know, sorting out their own lives. Um, so I, I and I also think that the narratives have changed around women's stories. Too often they were commodified as victims of war and as the faces of humanitarian aid, for example, and why aid should be given rather than being empowered. And going back to Bosnia, one of the things that really angered me uh, in the early 90s and kind of got my fire going on this issue was the women uh, being bussed out of Srebrenica after the terrible rapes and murders. And the BBC, the good old BBC, reporting that there were alleged incidents of rapes. They were literally talking to the women falling off the buses whose husbands and sons had been taken and shot. They've been raped, but they couldn't, it had to be verified. And this issue of evidence and proving yourself, whether it's in a court of law as a rape victim or whether it's a war crime um, in a conflict zone, it has not changed. And I've been in and around the Security Council when I've heard debates for thresholds of evidence that I do not see happening for other issues, you know? and. Yeah. Uh, and, and building the evidence and cases for that. So I, I think those structural things are there, but they only change with new leadership, new people and new ways of doing things. And I think creating alliances across um, institutions. So I think one of the good things is, and I'm sure Neve probably finds this working at the UN in New York, is you're working across a range of stakeholders. It's not just the government you represent. And so, it's building those alliances to drive, keep mm -hmm. driving change yeah. forward. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting point you make as well about um, the resistance in large organizations, um, but also that, um, and something we all struggle with in, in change, which is, uh, and the only kind of way I can describe it is structural memory. 
that no matter how much you push something to change, it kind of bounces back again. Like, for example, the bounce back on, oh, we have to have the evidence or we have to have balanced reporting. And you suddenly find out, oh, well, that, that ends up with this consequence against our interest and agenda and so on. Uh, I think we can come back to that. And I, I, the, the other idea of that self-empowerment and the role of social media in that, uh, which allows people to connect in ways that they could never yes. do. We might come back to that. Um, I wanted to talk to Niamh then um, as, as an officer of this department, uh, and our department is not perfect either, no department is, um, but you've been uh, at the UN, you've seen it through the Security Council. Um, I know you've had a focus on 1325 and, and women, peace and security. Be interested in your kind of comments on the UN kind of disposition towards these agendas at the moment and how you see it going. Yeah, um, thanks and, and hi to all colleagues and happy St. Bridget's Day as well and really pleased to have the opportunity to be a part of this discussion. Um, yeah, listen, we've had a really intense two years working on the Security Council as an elected member for 2021 and 2022. Um, you know, some of the colleagues have mentioned Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace and Security, which was really a groundbreaking um, piece of work. Um, and has really, you know, forced the hand of the Security Council in terms of uh, dealing with and kind of mainstreaming gender perspectives through through all the work that it does. But we still we still do have um, a long way to go in that regard as well. And I mean, I, I often do ask myself um, if 1325 were tabled today for the first time. Would it be successful? Would it pass? Um, would it get 15 affirmative votes and consensus that it did back in the year 2000? Um, and kudos to Namibia for spearheading it at the time. But I think probably the answer to that question is, is no, um, unfortunately. And that's a reflection of um, the dysfunction of the Security Council, current dynamics at the Security Council table, particularly in the aftermath of of the uh, Russia's uh, aggression against against Ukraine, but also the kind of um, regression we're seeing in in the space of women's and girls' rights um, more more generally. Um, so I think thirteen twenty five is really is really unique in that sense, and we're very fortunate to have that foundation that we do have to build on. Although it's not perfect, and there's a long a long way to go, um, it is very unique. And you know, it's not something we've been able to achieve in other thematic areas. For example, you think of the discussion around climate and security, um, where Ireland tried to we tabled a resolution in twenty twenty one with Niger. Um, which was vetoed by Russia and also not supported by India in spite of really broad um, support within the, the general UN membership. So I think the space for these discussions, unfortunately, is, is, increasingly, is increasingly challenging. Um, and, and one of the, the things that I found in my experience here in New York has been, you know, it's, it's all well and good to talk about women, peace and security kind of um, from a thematic or kind of uh, broad general uh, context and to show up at an open debate in October or around International Women's Day and to say nice things. But when we get into the nitty gritty and we're talking about country specific situations, we're talking about Afghanistan, we're talking about Yemen, you know, that's when that's when uh, we really hit resistance. So there's there's a long way to go. But we've you know, we have made strides and it was a priority for Ireland um, in our two years on the council. Um, we stood up for Afghan women's rights in a really tangible way. It's something we mainstreamed across our work, um, especially bringing women civil society to the council table. Um, and that's not something that all UN Security Council members believe in or agree in, but it's what others mentioned about 
amplifying voices um, of women on the ground and, and being able to hear their stories. And they don't want us to speak for them by any means. Mm. They want us to, to amplify their voices and to give them the platforms to share their experiences. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some really interesting comments you have there, which I think are very sobering when you use words like regression. And I wonder mm -hmm. whether or not, and because I think it is the case, we've certainly seen, I think, a rollback of this notion of the universal applicability of human rights. And that that is that we, we have come across resistance in that with uh, the war uh, against Ukraine, Yemen, the instability that flowed from the Iraq war, for example, um, uh, right across the Middle East. In a way, we've entered a period of hard power and hard power is always about men and machines and the war and military. And we don't have time for all of this kind of human rights stuff. And that that broader narrative is the one that has this impact on the progression of women's rights. Then that just falls away. So it is quite sobering for you to, to assess at this stage that 1325 may not have uh, the votes that it did have back in 2000, you know. Um, it's a really, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite sobering that uh, the, 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 not only are we trying to evolve uh, and advance women's rights, but in fact, uh, it's now under siege from, from kind of your perspective within the UN. Um, the, the failure in a way to create a, a UN organization around women, because it was kind of, kind of a, you know, UN women was kind of, was that a significant kind of moment? And maybe Eleanor, you want to speak to that? Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think that's very true. I think UN Women came about 10 or 15 years too late. I mean, it was trying to create itself as a UNICEF or a, just as multilateralism was de declining. And in fact, we still haven't done the necessary UN reforms, I think, to make it effective for mm. now. But I think the UN also can't be too bashed. I think it can only do as much as the political will will allow. Mm. And uh, that isn't just limited to the... Um, recalcitrant members of the Security Council. There's plenty of uh, uh, European and other countries playing um, playing politics as well. Yeah. Um, and cutting aid budgets, for example, and cutting support to civil society, to peace building, to gender programs, um, which have, have, have been a mainstay. But I do think, Eamon, what's amazing, I think, around this work is the synergy that exists between women's movements and I don't even want to say civil society because some of them don't have names they can go to schools individuals down to very local levels frankly on another level I could say to Neve and I was there in 1325 past I was part of the push uh, I was in the UN at that time and but it was civil society it was it was women's organizations all around the world that had created the platform for 1325 uh, Condoleezza Rice Hillary Clinton others came in and pushed it and profiled and, and governments came in. But frankly, if 1325 didn't exist today, the amazing um, cooperation and communication, and as you said, Eamon, earlier, accelerated by social media, is connecting women. Some of the best dialogues I've seen have happened between women in Syria and Bosnia. Completely different wars, you could argue, different, different mm. decades. Um, and yet, pushing together, learning from each other. And that kind of transnational um, network is there and it doesn't need money. It obviously would strengthen and grow if it had it, but needs must. People are reaching out. I'm sure the women in Ukraine are connecting and being connected mm -hmm. with uh, women and people who've, walked, who've been there before and, and can mm -hmm. bring lessons. So 
I think um, UN Women, I think, is a great recognition of the global advances. But having, for example, had gone toe to toe with peacekeeping operations um, office and the political affairs office, so on mediation and peacekeeping, some of us did feel that the arrival of UN Women set back the work that had been happening for DPKO to take up. Why? Because you know, it was kind of kind of corralled somewhere else? Was that? Yes. It go, you get back to the gender focal point. It's like the minute you appoint a woman in an organization to be, oh, you know. Yeah, that's um, done. Yeah. It's gone. Oh, she's dealing with it. And then there's one person left, uh, you know, whether it's um, frankly to do with um, being an ethnic minority or, or you know, or, or being a woman. And, and the focal point system has failed over and over again. It comes back to your fact of structural mm. change not being, it's not enough. It has to happen at the top. It has to be in the business plans, the budgets, the strategy, the results, the promotions. You know, you, yeah. you, you've got to show you're back in this agenda and you're working on it. And um, so, um, and, and there is that. And I'm afraid we have the classic interagency politics and they play out in government departments too. Oh, yeah. I've been around the world where there have been, you know, ministries of gender and, and, and children's affairs, women and children into one ministry. There's never any money. They have no access to the president's office, um, you know, um, and they're relying on on trickles, you know, from the international aid budgets. Um, yeah. So I, I'm I, I'm not saying that it's not important to have an office. I just think you've got to think about what the purpose of these kinds of structures are. Yeah. To drive yeah. No, it can be a very good point. I mean, it is a very good point. I think that very often, and we we've seen that and you and I have been in situations where yeah. you, you see you meet these police officers in the context of security sector reform, and they kind of laugh and point to the end of the table. Oh yeah, we have her. She's dealing with sexual violence, and <laughs> so I don't have to deal with. It, you know. Yeah. Um, I want to just tack back as well to Sally on the point that that, that many of you raised, which is the empowerment of social media, almost a kind of fruitful anarchy going on outside of power structures that social media has allowed. I don't think that's what's happening in Iran, for example, could be possible without mobile phones. Is that, I mean, Sally, did you want to speak to some examples of how social media has empowered and allowed women to connect and share experiences that allow them to say, oh yeah, I'm actually in a completely mad situation here because people, women can be normalized to the most abnormal situations. And is social media a kind of an antidote to that, Sally? Well, actually, there's so many things I want to comment on to come back to the various stories you've just told or comments you've just made. As for social media, uh, it is very effective. It's also a huge problem. And it's another example of why you have to ask yourself, why why does Google, uh, Facebook, Twitter, why do they allow these dreadful comments to be made to people like me and my colleagues and you and your colleagues on social media. So social media does bring us together, but it's also the greatest source of conspiracy theory. It is also where sexual harassment is blooming. So, so, so I think that's, uh, I think that's a, a good and bad news story, but there's a couple of points I want to make. You're, you're talking about how the men are um, are growing in power. I, I would like to point out that during the pandemic, the countries that did best were countries run by women, Finland, Germany, New Zealand, for example. The countries that did the worst in the pandemic 
were countries run by populist men like Trump in the US, like <clears throat> Bolsonaro in Brazil, and even in Hungary. And I think this is not only about uh, 1325. This is not only about the functioning of the UN. This is people rising up. And this is women being at the table that 1325, of course, said. And, and Eleanor, I have to tell you that in Canada, we toasted all of you the night that it was passed. We all came together, at least the women's movement in, in, uh, in Toronto, to, to toast this wonderful move. But the problem is, and it comes to every single thing all of us have said, is we know how to make a difference, and yet we cannot do it. And we have to find a way to untie those knots. It's not enough. It's not enough for us to be able to say, well, that, that women did well, women leaders did well in the pandemic. We have to be able to deal with those who are putting women down to the point, they're wrecking their own economies. They're, they're certainly um, damaging the health level of their people. And there's one other, uh, if you don't mind, if I'll, I'll just quickly say regarding the media, Eleanor, I also covered the Srebrenica. And, and I wanna just tell you this quick story. I was in Sarajevo doing a story on the effect of war on children when I first heard about the gang raping of women in Bosnia. And, and as a journalist, we know that one of the first casualties of war is usually the truth. So you have to be very, very careful about what you report. But as I was leaving the next day, I had my story, but as this day went on, I, I heard more and more credible evidence that this was actually going on. I was working at a magazine. I could rush this story to press in three months. So I came to Canada the next day and I gave it to a huge news agency in Toronto. And I said, send a reporter, this is world news. And seven weeks later, I phoned him back and said, whatever happened? He said, oh, you know, I was on deadline. You know, I got busy. It was a good idea, but you know, I forgot. I said, 20,000 women were gang raped. Some of them eight years old, some of them 80 years old. And you forgot. He said, oh, Sally, you're always going on and on about the women. Fast forward, I was on a plane two days later, did the story. I'm, in, I'm ashamed to say I won so many awards for that story on the back of the brave woman, Eva Penovich, who was willing to tell it. And, and I can tell you this, I work for a magazine in Canada. If that story happened today, I would be at the end of a very long line of very well-known international journalists who would be reporting it. Because when I was there in Sarajevo, CNN was there, BBC was there, uh, the Globe and Mail was there, the New York Times, they were all there. But today, women's issues are on the front page. What is not being done is we are not able to stop those who see women as sex slaves, as, as, as not part of society, as and not worth human rights. Sorry, I took a long time, but I wanted to- No, that's to fine. And, and it's a very well taken point about how social media can magnify the negative and stereotypes and cluster uh, people together with, with very malign psychosis and, and, and views and so on. I wanted to, um, to ask a question because it, it often pops up and and it and you and lot, all of you have touched on this, which is about the number of women in an organization and picking up on your points out. We know, for example, that during the financial crisis, banks that were run by women had much less exposure and so on. They just don't take the risks that men do. But I wanted to ask a question around quotas. You know, should organizations be mandated 
uh, on the basis of quotas for women's entry into them. Um, maybe Roberta, throw that live wire over at you in an organization that's predominantly male. Do you think they should have quotas? And and in and if you were a if you were a commander, if you're the chief of staff, would that be something on your agenda or not? And if not, why? Um, I've changed my views on this over the years. Um, and I think this comes with the naivety of youth. When you join an organization, you think I'm going to work hard and I'm going to get to the top of my position no matter what. But I think we've all touched on it there, Eleanor, Sally and Neve, like the structures that are in place that are seen as meritocracy. Uh, when you are a bit longer in the organization, they aren't as meritocratic <laughs> as we think. Uh, they're not as, as fair and as even. So when we talk about meritocracy, um, it, it, does such thing exist with uh, subjectivity and all that with personalities? So to answer your question, um, I would look at it um, and would, would look at introducing it, but with different caveats at stake, be it that a position um, at a much higher level and two candidates, all things being equal and going for interview, that you would uh, have to, at some stage, allow uh, the, the female ahead um, of, of their male counterpart. But I wouldn't just bring in quotas for the sake of it. You would have to be looking at being the looking at the um, best person for the job. Are they capable of doing uh, the work that's required? And then how you actually put that into either a promotion structure. And then going back then, um, as I look across my own peers currently, and it's amazing how um, you th there's no official mentorship, but I see it happening amongst the the senior male officers that um, you see the younger um, men are being given better opportunities. Now it's very difficult to prove that, uh, mm. but what is seen as the, the Gucci project or the one that's going to give that younger officer the opportunities. So again, um, as um, a senior leader in the organization, when I go back to my own uh, naval service and the defense forces, I would look at that needs to be looked at on how we actually have to bring in official mentorship and giving equity. It's not even equality. We're going to equity of opportunity for our women within organizations. So that's how I would see about um, promoting uh, the agenda. And that's where uh, we spoke about UNSA War 1325, how it's been good for um, myself from a military perspective. It's caused our organization uh, both when we go on peacekeeping missions, but internally to look at our numbers. And it isn't just add women and stir. You want people who are advocates, who incorporate the gender perspectives, both how a war situation affects men, women, boys and girls differently, or how your policies from an internal structure, how they affect men and women. Uh, differently. I'm a strong feminist mm. and as a younger, young 20 year old, I thought, oh yeah, there's nothing is going to change. I'm, I can progress the same way as my male counterpart. But sadly, I've come as I became a mother of three children. There are different decisions that I have to make as I uh, climb the, the ladder within my organization that are very distinct and unique to a woman uh, yeah. than my male counterpart. And it's not that um, my male colleagues uh, don't want to have families and they certainly do uh, um, support their partners in equal uh, rearing of the children. But there are certain decisions as, as women that are just that different to, to the men. 
and we're it's slowly happening but it's still we've uh, introduced it took nearly 12 years to bring in a maternity policy into the defense forces uh you know for for to say to hr like we do need this it's not a um, case by case basis because you need to be able to advocate for the most junior rank to the highest rank so I suppose to answer your question in a long-winded uh, um, manner is is that I would be an advocate, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't just do a blank uh, sweep and right. quotas for the sake of quotas. You would have to be uh, brought in and um, measured because you don't want to take uh, this perception or create this backlash. Certainly it can happen in um, one domination, even you know in the nursing field and the, say in military, if one gender is dominant over the other, it can create the backlash. So you want to have that balance if you bring them in. But I think we've gotten to the stage where we 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 don't we aren't able to increase the numbers past that critical mass. Certainly in the military, we've we stagnated at that six percent to seven percent, and we need to get that increase to drive that um, impetus for change. Yeah, I think it's a very. Uh, I think your answer is a very subtle one, actually, because. And I've come across it in our own organization in foreign affairs, a number of things that you mentioned, uh, the almost biological structure against women because they're the ones, you know, raising the kids and giving birth um, and how that biases their trajectory within the department. Um, you, I've often seen as well what you described there, where there's a, it can be a, a posting or a promotion or a placement in a job that you know is a gateway one and that suddenly defaults suddenly to the boys club as it were and and it can be very that discrimination can be very subtle it seems to suit an organization's interest but you could see where women's careers suddenly go off track uh, at some point they didn't get the gateway promotion that you know is going to lead to other things so, so i i think your answer is very subtle and comprehensive that it's not again just about a lump uh, kind of some quota it actually has to reach deeper into an organization's biases and 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 pathways to 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 greater power um the uh i just going to to neve i i mean the un is in many ways paradoxically you know a very powerful organization and a very disempowered one because as as eleanor said it is dependent on the member states what it can do um do you think it's on the right course for putting more women in positions of power or, or how do you see that playing out? Um, well, firstly, I mean, I have to say I totally agree with with Roberta, what she mentioned about it's not about add women and stir um, and quotas for the sake of quotas aren't always effective. Um, and, you know, one thing moving away from the numbers point, I think, is the types of roles that you see women in, you know, at the UN, in my own experience, um, just in general, in interna international relations in the department. Um, I think we have to do better at thinking about the roles that women do and the roles that that men do. And you have this kind of idea, at least at the UN, in my own anecdotal experience, that, you know, you see more men doing the kind of hard security issues and um, yeah. peace security, disarmament, nuclear disarmament, etc. And then you have more women working on human rights, women, peace and security, humanitarian access, etc. Um, and you really do see those divides. And I was struck myself. I mean, I've spent the last two years working on the Middle East and North Africa, where we had more men than women. Um, mm. And I recently took over the human rights portfolio and my first EU coordination. So a coordination meeting between the 27 EU member states on the upcoming Commission on the Status of Women, which is taking place um, at the UN in March. 
Um, and I think there was only like three or four men at the table. And I was really shocked, you know, that even within the EU, delegations are sending women to talk about women's issues um, and men to talk about issues of hard peace and security. So I think, you know, aside from the quota point, it's also a matter of the nature of the roles and, and kind of breaking through those preconceived um, or unconscious notions that we have yeah. about the work that women can have. And it goes back to what Eleanor was saying also about ministerial portfolios. You know, you see that that women ministers are often working on social issues rather than issues of finance or justice or whatever. So um, there's a lot to there's a lot to unpack and there's a lot of there's a long way to go. I mean, the UN itself um, in terms of, of, of structural change, I mean, you do have, have more women in, in leadership positions. But um, again, it's not just about putting women in leadership positions. It's about um, you know, the nature of the work that they can do. I mean, I, if I'm just thinking, for example, I think a really interesting case study um, is recently Jacinda Ardern's decision to step down and, and resign. And I think that's something really refreshing and um, that she said, um, I'm not the right person for the job at this point in time. And how many times have we seen that, you know, from, from male leaders over the years that they have to be forced out of power and pushed to resign. I think that's a really new and interesting narrative that we... Um, we should reflect on that it's not about clinging to power and that that's not often the most effective way to govern. So I think uh, women have fresh takes to bring to leadership roles. Um, and yeah, that's 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 my two cents on that. <laughs> yeah, thank, no, I, I fully take your point that the, again, we're back to that thing about gender stereotyping and well, that's the kind of job for you, but the hard power stuff and the difficult ones are are, are kept uh, reserved for men. On Ardern, I think it's, it's really interesting to reflect as well. Uh, and I was talking to some people from New Zealand that she put up with a level of vituperation uh, that normal politicians never got in New Zealand. And this was a whole new ballgame, partly to do with, with, with social media, partly because she was a young woman in power um, and who was doing a very effective job. Uh, but she, you know, she certainly paid a heavier price for her prominent role, primarily because she was a woman. And, and so that, that kind of took a toll as well. Uh, Eleanor, did you want to, to comment on on the kind of um yeah the, i'll just the, make two quick points actually thanks really interesting discussion there's um, a very good uh researcher i think her name is o'rourke actually she's here at essex university but she coined a phrase glass cliff it's well known in organizational development circles and uh, basically and we saw it in the diplomatic services and the un the appointment of women once the crap had hit the fan excuse my language <laughs> But, you know, situation is worse. So when things were plain sailing or even in companies, corporates, you know, when the growth cycle was up, but when it came to making redundancies, when it came. So the women actually were not just having to show merit or capacity at a regular operating environment. They're supposed to actually do a turnaround and pull something out of the hole. Um, and so they're set up to fail. Yeah. And it's it's and and I must say I, I it's a classic uh observation i hope we're moving beyond the trend of that and that the understanding of leadership uh is is a bit more composite i would say the other thing is um Eamon, you made a good point about you know needing to get into the pathways and the whatever um you know speaking from academic experience and policy experience it's also about language policy and discourse the feminization almost as a form of abuse of certain policy areas so they're diminished and feminized almost in how they're spoken about. So therefore, they're soft issues. I hate that term, frankly, hard power, soft power. It's all power. Yeah. Um, and um, 
or even we're seeing it in the context of Ukraine and even mainstream diplomacy. You can't mention diplomacy, you can't mention peace. You're a traitor if you do in some quarters and on a lot of social media. Mm. And so suddenly to talk about gender equality or talk about peace building or talk about human rights, it's it's also says a lot about what is valued in our society and political systems at, at any given time. Yeah. There was a time when the peace movement was huge. There was a time when human rights and, and, and the rights movement across the world was 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 supreme. That was the whole purpose of the United Nations and and, yeah. and, and the international architecture we have. So I do think that their institutions also change. I think Iraq and Afghanistan has had a big impact on the securitization of policy, of aid, of discourse around even the stuff Eamon we would have worked on on the conflict resolution unit. Mm. You know, that whole thing has shifted. So I I think that coming back to women, peace and security, it's operating in a social and political and power based. So keeping alive to how that's shifting and changing all the time is important. Mm. So I think it's fair to say that we, we live in, in, in very, in far more difficult times than we probably would have anticipated 20 years ago. I think 20 mm. or 30 years ago, we would have assumed that we were on one trajectory and it was all going to be an awful lot be- better looking back. And in fact, it's not. There are parts where it's gotten better, but the forces are almost gathering. It's almost like a counter-revolution that we're seeing because the world has got much more negative. The world has got much more uh, protectionist, much more competitive. We're talking about technological decoupling. We're talking about a new Cold War. We're talking about these wars breaking out and, of course, the horrible implications of the American invasion of of of, of Iraq, which just spiraled all over the place, you know? Um, so that's kind of, again, quite sobering in many ways, just to tack back on the on the issue of merit and so on that Roberta raised. I, I've seen those situations as well. We could, we could almost coin a new word, meritrocious, because you could see these competitions and you know the outcome is not what it should have been, you know, and you, you have to ask why. Why did that happen? You know, I will say in defense of my own department, though, and, and I hope Nave would, would agree with me on this one, I think we've done very well recruiting women. Um, and in general, the women candidates, in my experience, have always been far better than men candidates, the young men. The young men seem to be very lost these days and women seem to be quite determined, very focused. They do very well in interviews sustaining their career trajectory is the difficult bit, you know, because of the very, you know, the, the, the family pressures and, and, and the biases as well about what kind of jobs they should be, they should be in. Um, just to Sally, did you want to comment? Yes, I do. I do have a comment to make about that because uh, there are a lot of negatives and we've listed a lot of them. We've, we've listed what should work and it doesn't work. We've listed the atrocities, but I feel very, very strongly that the bottom line is that women are better off. They're a lot better off. We've got a lot more to do. Let me tell you one story. Do you remember, I think it was a year ago, it'll be two years in March, when that little craft called Perseverance landed on Mars. Do you know that, I mean, that was historical, wasn't it? I mean, what a huge, huge event. Do you know that that was, that was done by women astronauts. And, and do you remember, it was in the news, when, when they were landing that little craft, it took seven months to get there and then seven minutes to land. And she referred to it, the, the women astronaut, as seven minutes of terror. And, and once it was landed, they were interviewed. And, and one of the reporters said to her, 
how would you how would you liken this? It took seven months to get there, seven minutes to tear it, to land it. You've been working on it for years. How would you liken it? And her answer was, I'd liken it to childbirth. And my heart leapt because, first of all, no one would ever have used that term before in terms of a, a fantastic, scientific, brilliant uh, piece of work. Uh, and no one would ever have, uh, and it was peopled by women. So, so what I'd like to respond to you, Ambassador, is we have a lot of work to do. I am disgusted by the way men are not taking responsibility for the wrongs for women. But at the end of the day, women are way better off. Those women in Bosnia, by the way, they went to The Hague and they made rape a war crime in 1998. That's huge. So I think we are better off, but we've got to, we've got to stay at the at the job. Great. I we're coming to the end now, and and I wanted to tack back to Saint Bridget herself, but also all the the little Saint Bridgets out there, the little are 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 the next generation of women coming up. And if you could, perhaps each of you reflect on the advice that you would give them, because they're gonna they're gonna come across success. They're going to come across failure. They're going to come across bias. If you had to sum up a piece of advice that you would give to uh, a, a, a young uh, girl coming up and growing up in this world, what would it be? And maybe maybe we'll start with you, Neve. Sure. Um, I mean, it's it's a tough one. It's a, it's a philosophical one. Um, I think probably if I had to to give one piece of advice to uh, a young St. Bridget or a young version of myself, I would say, you know, the narrative we've heard over the past couple of years is quite a lot about leaning in and about women behaving like men in order to advance. And I don't think we need to do that. I think we can do it in our own way. Um, so to be true to yourself um, and um, yeah, be true to who you are, um, work hard, uh, be kind. Um, it's not all about, you know, power, cutthroat, masculine approaches, but um, to do things as as you are yourself. So I think that would be that would be my advice in a nutshell off the top of my head. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, no, very good. And kindness, I think, is a universal value that that applies to absolutely everything. You know, uh, Eleanor, I was going to suggest join a hurling club after hearing Roberta's <laughs> story. <laughs> not a bad suggestion. And I, I join a boys one. Uh, well, I had Ned Power, the Waterford goalkeeper, for uh, my teacher in primary school. The only time Waterford won the All Ireland, he he was in goals, and he didn't care boys or girls. He never. We all had to get a hurley and a slitter, and we had to run it up and down the field. <laughs> didn't Not matter. Bad. Yeah. Um, um, I I think um I think dream big because I think sometimes um. Dreams are even withstood. I can remember things teach well meaning teachers said to me when I said the most ridiculous things, you know, when I, when I was a school child, like maybe wanting to be a writer or, you know, want discussing politics and what are you doing discussing politics? You know, it should be of no interest to you. And I and I and I and I just think to yeah, to dream big and speak your mind, really. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, my daughter reminded me the greatest thing that Disney ever said was you've got to have a dream because otherwise your dream can't come true. Which is not bad, actually, for, for a major corporation, but there we go. Uh, Roberta, uh, but sorry, just on the point, uh, it's actually a very good point about sport. I mean, I think one of the most public 
demonstrations of women's empowerment we see across the media is women in sport, women in soccer, women in the Olympics, women in rugby. There's nothing they can't do, you know. Um, and I think that so sport, I think, has actually been quite good from from that point of view. And I'm sure it has inspired young girls to 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 do things they may not have thought about or because the bias in I mean I know they've done studies on this and it was that that actress oh the I can't think of her name offhand she was in Talmud Louise she's been doing some amazing work in Hollywood tracking bias in Hollywood productions from cartoons onwards the roles that the cartoon male and female cartoon character it's incredible it was shocking actually the degree to which these stereotypes are imposed from the get-go almost, you know? Um, but sorry, Roberta, and of course you have your, your family as well. Um, and I'm sure you, 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 you impart wisdom by doing as much as by saying, but if you had to say something. Um, getting back to that. Yeah, I can see it firsthand. I have uh, two girls and a boy and, you know, they get very positive uh, experience at home, but it's amazing how it infiltrates into the, the mindset that, uh, boys can only do this or girls can do that. But I know that I, they're, I'm on a winning track anyway when I overheard my son saying to a friend of his, no, that doesn't matter. Girls can do that as well, like, you know, which is uh, playing the laser tag. So you got um, a nearly champion there. That's it. Um, but to reemphasize, I think um, I wrote down, uh, as Neil was talking before that I said yeah be your own person be true to yourself your authentic self which can be very difficult as a woman certainly in male dominated organizations um, as we want to be leaders or be part of the decision making levels because we're being told you have to behave this way and if you act like over aggressive then you're uh, too hard and too cold and it's called gender incongruity if you go against the perceived gender norms you're not going to be accepted so the advice I would say to the younger me or and my children is said to be your own self, uh, to quote uh, David Pilkey's uh, Little Petty, it's your colouring book, how you colour it is up to you. And uh, be the best uh, person that you can be. Don't be, it's not a competition like, uh, these are quotes that I've read over the years, it's not a competition or a race, it's how you want to uh, live your life. And um, it isn't, um, a rerun you only get one cut at the, the the title like you know it's it's um a live act um so enjoy the journey as you progress to life and be the best you can be that's what i would right say. yeah i think and i think uh i've got to the stage of my career where i can i can say if it ain't fun don't do it uh but it's not a bad approach either you know so sally we'll leave the la the last word with you in terms of summing up a piece of advice that you would impart well, first, I have to respond to the hurling story. When I was in Ireland in June, I had a hurling lesson. Now, it was in a pub, I admit, but I was picked out as the person they were going to use as the example for how to teach hurling. So I just want to know, I was trying to find the photo so I could add it to this. Um, I do want to fit into Ireland, you see, so I am a hurler <laughs> anyways. What would I say to young, I have young granddaughters. And I would say to them, you can do anything. You can do anything. The doors have been opened. You might have to make sure they stay open. And I hope you take us to the finish line because the road is there for you. And we are there as your grandmothers, your mothers, your sisters, your world community to help you go through that door. That's what I'd say to them. Yeah, great. Uh, listen, 
thank you all so much for participating on this St. Bridget's Day. Um, as I said earlier, I, it, it's great to have this uh, focal point for us to, to air some issues like this. Uh, it was fascinating, all of your contributions. I'm sure we could have kept going for much longer. But I want to thank you all again. Gurumila Mahagut. And uh, I hope our audience uh, got something from this conversation. I know I did. Thank you.